0: Welcome to the Making Sense podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay. Well, the last episode on guns and gun violence caused some consternation, especially for people outside of the U.S., listening from Europe or Canada or Australia. I don't think I have more to say on the topic. It seems that um, clearly articulating that I was recommending. Policies far more restrictive than anyone in the gun safety community in the United States was insufficient to spare me the wrath of those of you who think we should just scrap the Second Amendment and confiscate all firearms. If any of you see a path toward doing that, well, then by all means, describe that path. I mean, honestly, there have to be five million people for whom gun ownership is basically a religion. So unless we were going to fight a civil war with these people to confiscate their guns, I really don't see any hope there. Graham and I briefly discussed the possibility of a $1 trillion buyback of guns. I'm pretty sure that would be a non-starter for a variety of reasons. Anyway, if you need more from me on that topic, my original article, The Riddle of the Gun, is there, and it's in podcast form in episode 19. Okay. Well, today I'm speaking with Judd Apatow. Judd is an Emmy Award-winning director and producer, screenwriter, author, and comedian who is one of the most prolific comedic minds we have. He recently co-directed, along with Michael Bonfiglio, uh, and produced the HBO two-part documentary George Carlin's American Dream. He also recently authored a book, which is a New York Times bestseller, titled Sicker in the Head, which is a collection of interviews with fellow giants in comedy, and he has no doubt written, directed, or at least produced some of your favorite comedies in film. Anyway, this is a wide-ranging conversation about Judd's career in comedy, how he views society at large, questions of fame and success, advice for other creative people, and other topics. I found it a lot of fun. I hope you enjoy it. And now I bring you Judd Apatow. I am here with Judd Apatow. Judd, thanks for joining me. Great to be here, finally. It's only taken uh, two decades or more to actually have a conversation because you and I sat across the table from one another at our mutual friend, Brent Forrester's wedding. I think that's the only time I'm aware of hanging out with you. Is there, am I forgetting some time? Or did...
1: I think that was it, other okay. than a drive-by in the neighborhood. But I remember that wedding very well. And Brent is an old, old friend. Yeah. You know, he, uh, one of the original writers of the Ben Stiller show. And we also work together on love. And so we, we share an intimacy. We're not intimate with each other, but we are intimate with the same man.
0: And that's the proximate cause of uh, us speaking. In addition to um, you bringing out uh, a documentary that, that was great that we'll talk about, uh, just to remind people of who you are and and the kinds of things you do. You are a um, you are known for producing and often writing and directing some extraordinarily funny films. Uh, this is Forty Knocked Up, The Forty Year Old Virgin, Walk Hard, uh, Anchorman, Super Bad. Those, those are all just uh, hilarious movies. And you've also done a fair amount of television going all the way back to, I guess, was the Ben Stiller show your first TV or did you do something before that?
1: That was the first thing I did. Before that, I wrote for people and produced some stand-up specials. So I did some writing and produced mm-hmm. Roseanne, Roseanne's special uh, and you know I worked on Jim Carrey's special in the early 90s. But the first TV series was the Ben Stiller sketch show on Fox.
0: Right. Right. Yeah, I'll be interested to know how you first started, but um, I should just uh, your your filmography here also now includes documentaries, of which I have seen two. I don't know if you've done others, but you 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 had the Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling that came out a couple years ago, which was really great, and um, then you have this new one on HBO, George Carlin's American Dream, which we will talk about a little bit. I, I think people should just go see it. But um, I'll be interested to know what your experience of Carlin was. But uh, before we go there, let's go to the beginning. How how do you start producing a special for Roseanne? What what was your your first foothold?
1: Well, I I used to interview comedians in high school for my high school radio station just as a way to meet them Mm. and ask them how they do it. And that led to finding the courage to try to do stand-up during my senior year of high school on Long Island. And then I went to USC Cinema School, where I would book comedy at the school and then started booking a club and getting on stage, which led to getting in at the improv mm-hmm. and doing a lot of stand up there. And then a lot of my friends started needing jokes, and a lot of comedians wouldn't write jokes for other people. But I needed money, and I thought that was a fun thing to do because I just liked hanging around with comedians. And then Slowly people started getting specials like Tom Arnold and Roseanne and Jim Carrey. I did a, mm-hmm. a a pregame show to Paul Simon in Central Park for Dennis Miller. And then I met Ben Stiller and we came up with an idea for a sketch show. And that led to me veering away from doing stand-up and focusing more on writing for a long time. I went back into stand-up about eight years ago. Mm-hmm. But I at the time I stopped because I just thought, well the world is pulling me in this direction for some reason. So I'll just follow it.
0: Did you go to USC as an undergraduate or was that a graduate school in film?
1: It was undergraduate. I was 17 years old. I uh-huh. didn't know what I was doing. I just saw all my notes in a storage facility from class. And it, it, it was everything I should know right now, but still don't know <laughs> right. in the notes about making movies. But it it was the only major that seemed close to comedy or stand-up. So I studied screenwriting and ran out of money about a year and a half in, and then went full-time into stand-up just because uh, I couldn't afford USC any
0: longer. Mm. So you knew you wanted to go into comedy at the first possible moment. That's uh, pretty interesting. I mean, so who were your, who who was in the pantheon at that point? Where are we my comedy uh, history is weak here. Is that was Richard Pryor the, the most famous comedian in the world at that point, or?
1: Well, I'm about the exact same age as you. Yeah. yeah. So.
0: Well, was that? I forget what. Like, when did Eddie Murphy become the most famous comedian? What What, what year does that put us at?
1: That's around 1981. Okay. When right. Eddie Murphy really hit. And so, yeah, that's our sweet spot. That's 13, 14. Yeah. Saturday Night Live hit when we were eight. So then Steve Martin came on the heels of that. And that was the era of Richard Pryor and Monty Python and Mary Tyler Moore and Bob Newhart and MASH and all the family. That's what I grew up on. Mm. And so comedy was what I was attracted to. It's how I saw the world. I obviously goes into George Carlin that he was hitting hard in the, in the mid 70s. Mm-hmm. And it was my way of processing, I think, just how weird life is, how weird the world is, our families, our our schools. And I must have been hostile. I, I look back and think, I must have been angry and enjoyed the the avatar of of furious people, even if it was the Marx brothers, mm-hmm. that I just liked that someone was calling out all the bullshit. And it was a way of figuring out how to look at the world as, you know, something that in a lot of ways was scary and ridiculous.
0: Did you know Carlin at any point, or um, is this just a, uh, this documentary, just a, a labor of love that is um, more abstract than the one you did with uh, Gary Shandling? Well, so Gary you obviously you knew quite well, and that really comes through in the film, but was there any overlap between you and Carlin?
1: Well, I interviewed George Carlin for Canadian television in the early 1990s and I had gone to see him work on new sets, but I didn't know him at all. I knew his daughter Kelly mm-hmm. and when I was asked to do this I, I, I mean, I, I knew Kelly a little bit at the time through Gary Shandling my first thought was, you know, don't ruin this man's life I, yeah. I mean, it's, it, it is pretty scary to put these things together because in a lot of ways it becomes the the main public record of their entire life yeah. and If you do a terrible job, and we've seen documentaries that don't work, it may change people's perception of this person. So I was really nervous about it, especially because I didn't know him. And I wondered if through talking to relatives and friends and looking at the footage, you could capture this. Can you really capture the vibe of a person? So I'm so happy that Kelly loves the documentary because that is the thing that drives me, my terror of doing it wrong.
0: I don't I might have had a stroke in the interim. I, I watched the documentary a couple of weeks ago. I don't remember. Did you put footage of your Canadian TV interview of him in it?
1: No, it was the one interview I could not find. I'm such a hoarder. I saved everything. Hmm. But you know what? I think it was a bad interview. I was very hmm. young. I think other people did much better interviews with him than I did. I mm. mean, it might have been cute to see me there, yeah. but I, I, I think it wasn't very good. But yeah, I remember him being very clear and kind and uh, w- was certainly in, in that, that early 90s phase where he started getting very dark and very political and had a special called uh, Jammin' in New York around that time. And a lot of the bits that people are quoting about abortion and other issues came from that special.
0: Yeah, it was interesting to see what a prisoner of the available formats he was in the beginning. He was doing all those variety shows, and then it was fascinating to see how he he had to kind of muscle his way out of all that.
1: It was, I think, a, you know, a simple path back then. If you were a comedian when he started, there were no comedy clubs, so you were you were performing at nightclubs, usually with a a singer. I mean, he got fired from the Playboy Club for talking about Vietnam. Uh, this was a Playboy club in wisconsin and the bill was him and bet midler (laughs) (laughs) and that's what the shows were like and if you wanted to get famous you had to go on these variety shows and they were very you know conservative for the most part people weren't very edgy they didn't challenge the audience politically it was pretty soft and i think he really was a clean-shaven well-behaved comedian trying to slip some things in here and there like the hippy dippy weatherman obviously he's, mm. he's finding a way to act stoned on TV in the 60s and do that kind of a a, a bit but then i think as the country was uh, having a lot of problems and the war was was uh, getting more and more intense and the counterculture movement hit he thought i don't want to play for everybody's parents uh, you know he just right. thought um, my crowd is the people that i don't want it to be i i, I want to be talking to the people who are changing the world and he had to take some chances and he started cursing on stage and getting more political he, he started getting fired for it and also later arrested for it and finally you know he grew his hair and and uh, his beard and just made a very conscious choice to not be the guy he was before and he was making a lot of money I mean they said he was making twelve grand a week in Vegas when he got fired for cursing on stage at the frontier hotel I mean that's insane money for 1969. Mm -hmm. And to then switch to colleges and and coffee houses, I'm sure he he did really badly for for a long time, but but it was important to him. And I think that inspired a lot of other comedians to be themselves on stage and to be more authentic.
0: It, It is amazing to reflect on the fact that just a few decades ago, you could get arrested for saying something off color on stage. I mean, that's you know we talk a lot about cancel culture and abridgments of free speech or, or you know attitudes that would would lead to such abridgments and you know but it really was watching the documentary it was a bit of a shock to realize i had forgotten that a few short years ago you know, literally the, the cops would show up and uh, drag you off stage that i mean it seemed, it's just it somehow seems impossible
1: yeah we hear about you know Lenny Bruce getting arrested and you wonder what that was about And uh, I think Lenny Bruce thought it was about the fact that he talked about the church and that they used obscenity laws as a way to punish him for doing bits about the church. He had this very famous bit called God Incorporated, where he would do a sketch where he played all the characters, and it was the head of every denomination talking about how business was going. Like Mm -hmm. a stockholders meeting or, you know, a a board meeting of the company and the company being religion. And he went after religion pretty hard. So he went to, you know, certain cities, he would get arrested for cursing on stage. But they said it was a way to just, you know, victimize him for his stances. And he spent, you know, a lot of, you know, the end of his life fighting those things in court and he was a drug uh, addict at the time and, and died of an overdose, but really lost himself in that battle and would stay on stage reading the transcripts. Mm-hmm. A lot of people have seen the movie Lenny with Dustin Hoffman, but it was a pretty tragic affair, and it does feel like it, w- it was less about the cursing than it was about speaking out against organized religion.
0: Is Lenny Bruce still funny? It's been a long time since I've, I've watched any of his Stand up, but I remember going back at some point and trying to find what was funny and coming up short. Is it, am I did I just miss his genius?
1: You you didn't like uh, Dwight Eisenhower bits. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, somehow
0: they didn't land for me.
1: But, I mean, comedy ages really badly for most people. That so do if, you,
0: if, can you draw any lesson from that? I mean, is, is there comedy that you think will be truly timeless that stands a chance of being absolutely hilarious fifty years from now or are you continually surprised and disappointed to find that you are you're finding stuff you, you, you know you were you thought something was hilarious and now it is decidedly less so or even unfunny to an embarrassing degree to you now?
1: Yeah, I, it's uh, it's certainly a victim of changing times, changing values. You know, Lenny Bruce You know, he was a hipster comic. It was connected to like jazz clubs and a certain way of speaking. And at the time, no one did it the way he did it. And he was very bold in a way, very few people other than maybe Mort Saul was. And if you listen to the records, you almost have to listen to them through the filter of history and think about when he did it to really appreciate it. There certainly are things that are very funny, but also it's a style Mm. that doesn't resonate anymore for the most part. But there, there is some funny stuff, but you probably have to dig through a bunch of things to get to it. The things that were shocking then are not shocking at all now. Right. A lot of references are to things at the time. But it is pretty hard to be funny in the long run. Like for me, like I could watch W.C. Fields and really laugh. Mm. I think some of the Charlie Chaplin stuff and the Buster Keaton stuff can be hilarious. You know, the, the Marx Brothers make me laugh. A lot with stand-up though, it ages out pretty quickly. And even people that we love, like say Bill Hicks, who was in the in the style of Carlin to a certain extent, his stuff was maybe more about that moment. He had more references. And so it ages where George Carlin, he didn't have that many references to things like Reagan and the Sandinistas. He would do it here and there, but he tried to talk about the the big issue. You know what do we make of abortion? What do we make of dark money in politics or big pharma and drug laws? And as a result, it doesn't age because he's asking the larger question.
0: Mm. Yeah, I was surprised to learn just how much drugs and alcohol derailed him. It was, I mean, it was cocaine for him, and I guess alcohol for his wife. But I mean, that it really had a precarious existence there for a while. I mean, it, it was. Uh, it was easy to see they could have been just total casualties of the lifestyle they had created at one point, but then they kind of pulled themselves out of a nosedive.
1: I mean, part of the, the story is about he met his wife in 1960 and had a baby, Kelly, shortly after, and he went on the road and he didn't have much money and he would leave, you know, three weeks at a time, six weeks at a time. And his wife, Brenda, didn't get to pursue her dreams. She, she had to stay home. That was part of you know, the culture, it, it wasn't like a, a marriage was built around what she wanted to do professionally. And I think he wanted her to stay home because he wasn't home. And I think it broke her spirit. And a lot of the story is, is about her becoming addicted to alcohol as a result of that. I'm sure there are other reasons as well. And then he was, I think, a pot smoker from the time he was in junior high school. And at some point that turned into... Uh, hallucinogens, which he's, he said was part of his transformation to his new style of comedy. And then it was also cocaine, which it, it, it seems like was somehow connected to an obsessive-compulsive disorder he had, an obsession with words and language and and maybe he had some sort of attention deficit that he was self-medicating for. But back then, I don't think people thought they were going to die from cocaine. They, they looked at it differently. People started dying you know later than that, people were mm-hmm. more aware of the danger, and he would go on three day benders six days without sleep, and there's tapes in the documentary, which are him just screaming and singing, and it's a little bit terrifying and that's what Kelly grew up in this house where yeah, her parents were really at war with each other, and there was an enormous amount of addiction and strangely, thank god they they both got sober. I think George still probably did some things throughout his life, but for the most part, you know, they were sober and were able to find each other again. It, it's kind of a miracle that they were able to do that.
0: Mm. Yeah, he got surprisingly nihilistic toward the end of his life. I don't know if this was when he was still having problems with drugs or the, or even if this was when he was sober and it's just a shadow that was cast over the rest of his life, but there's a quote in, I think, if memory serves, this might have been one of his, you know, handwritten notes that you show in the in the doc, where he says, you can't care what happens and be really funny. Um, and by caring what happens there, he seemed to mean like, you know, whether the, the species, the human species gets wiped out or, you know, suffers any other kind of cataclysm. And he seemed to be, I mean, do, do you think he was honestly expressing his Psychological and ethical worldview at that point? Or do you think it was just kind of a, a nihilistic affectation he was, he was putting on for comedic or, or rhetorical effect?
1: Well, I think it was a, a combination. It certainly was a comedic stance. Mm-hmm. I think the more you exaggerate, the funny you are, the angry you are, the funny you are. That's why there's a lot of angry people, a lot of opinionated people. I mean he had five different sections to his career. I mean he kept changing what he was doing. He started out in a comedy team that was a little bit political. Then he did a pretty soft solo act and then he went and became a hippie and and went hard against authority, became a real critical thinker. Then he softened again because he had like a heart attack and he mm-hmm. he thought I can't make myself so crazy. I'm going to die from being this stressed out. And then he saw Sam Kennison, and he thought I don't want to Breathe this guy's dust. And he tried to become a better writer and a better comic and out Kinison Kinison in a way. And then he became very political. But the last phase was that phase that people debate because he started saying, There's no hope for the human race. I'm just going to watch it as a spectator and I'm going to enjoy the show as this comes apart. And I always took it as getting so dark that you're basically saying to people, I'm trying to be funny, but things are terrible, and I doubt it'll get fixed in my lifetime. If you're smart, you would fix it, but it ain't going to happen for me, so I'm just going to enjoy the madness of this reality and the human race and the disaster they've made of it. And he did say that underneath the cynic, if you scratch a cynic, you'll find a disappointed idealist. Mm. And I think he he's, he was disappointed in, the opportunity that the human race had. Uh, you know, he would joke about how beautiful the world was, nature, and how we decided to build malls and just walk inside these malls and that we were just screwing everything up and hurting each other and how ridiculous we are. And I think he thought it was funny to just call it all out. And, but underneath it, I think he never wanted anyone to get hurt or suffer. I think it was just. The final scream of a, of a, someone who is saddened by some of the things that we all do
0: mm. well anyway I'll, all I can do is uh, recommend that people watch both uh, parts of the doc because it's a, just a, an amazing tour through his career and also just the uh, it's a time capsule experience of just that period in history it's It's fascinating. How do you think about your career at this point I mean, how much how much of your life is spent writing versus actually making movies versus doing the business of making movies i mean how, do you have a sense of how many days a year you're you're you've got a, a camera rolling and how many days a year you're just facing a blank sheet of paper
1: well a lot of uh, you know directing is writing and trying to get something together to direct so i usually direct every two or three years and in between produce some television and do some documentaries. I, you know, I have this book Sicker in the Head, which is mm-hmm. interviews with a lot of comedians. You know, I enjoy like the historian aspect of it now, and it's you know I get pulled in different directions. I I try to just be very open and do what I'm passionate about in that moment. There's no real logic to the career other than if I have a good idea, I, I think. Well, I'm being uh, pushed to make a movie with P. Davidson. And I'm interested in the world of firefighters and everything that Pete went through as a son of someone who, who lost their life in 9-11. So that suddenly might occupy me for three years mm. where I'm just trying to figure out how to tell that story appropriately. And then in the aftermath of it, I might just go, well, now's a good time to make the George Carlin documentary. It's almost a form of healing and recovering and switching to a different skill uh you know, when I'm out of gas, and it almost fills up my tank to think about someone else's career and their work and organizing a way to tell that story and and writing the book and interviewing comedians, you know, if I take two years and interview you know Sasha Baron Cohen and Margaret Cho and Amber Ruffin and all these people, I learn from talking to them, and it makes me excited about taking another risk because the movies are the big risk if they don't do yeah. well it hurts and you know you're really putting years of your life on something which is an experiment every movie is an experiment it might not work and you do have to steel yourself for the swing and hope that you know you pull it off
0: yeah how much of your experiences of having too many irons in the fire or you know something close to too many where you're you're bouncing between projects and kind of triaging your attention or or how much is, is your just having actually figured out a cadence and a workflow that really is really optimized where you can just kind of move from project to project and um, without a sense of having taken on too many commitments?
1: It's a never-ending struggle to figure that out. Mm. Because early in my career, I tried to write a movie and do nothing but write this one movie. I thought I'll be like James Brooks and I'll just spend several years on one thought. And then I finished it, and no one wanted to make it. Right. And I felt like I just wasted like two or three years. So I guess I need to have a couple of things going at the same time. And usually, people only want to deal with one. Every once in a while, a few things are happening at the same time. But the main moment when I was really busy was after The 40-Year-Old Virgin was a hit, we had written a lot of movies and developed a lot of movies that no one wanted to make. And then suddenly everyone was like, oh, we get what you're doing now. So we'll make Pineapple Express and mm-hmm. Super Bad and Walk Hard and, and Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Like suddenly they all just went. And that was a, a terrifying moment. But I was lucky because I was working with teams of people, incredible directors and writers like Seth and Evan and Greg Matola and David Gordon Green and Jason Siegel that they were so incredible that, you know we were able to you know avoid disaster when suddenly there clearly was too much yeah. going on but that was just the result of being so out of work that we just kept writing another movie and i kept saying well let's just write another one at some point someone's going to let us make one of these and then you know we got lucky that they were like okay well we'll make it now cuz super bad we were trying to get that made for forever. I mean it was it was hmm. you know it was 6 or 7 years when we were trying to convince people that that would be a good idea and and then suddenly people thought, "Oh, I think we get your style now." Right. And then they said, "Okay."
0: Well, it, it from the outside it seems like there's a fair amount of improvisation. Is there, or is that I mean, how how much is is on on book and how much is just you letting these these very talented comedic actors freewheel for a while and hoping you catch something
1: you know it you know it depends i know i remember you know seth rogan and evan goldberg wrote super bad and we couldn't get anyone to make it so we kept doing table reads of it and they would punch it up and we would do another table read and they would punch it up and still no one would make it and then when we shot it everyone talked about how much improv was in it and jonah i think thought oh there's so much improv in it and i remember we all looked at the, the the shooting script afterwards and realized there actually wasn't that sure. much improv in it. I think it was such a great loose set that it felt like a lot more. But other movies, I think, when I direct, I encourage more of that. I, I just enjoy that process mm-hmm. of, of seeing if something incredible can happen that you don't see coming. With the movie I just did for Netflix, The Bubble, you know, we did an enormous amount of improvisation, and I think some of the great moments in movies like Knocked Up or The Four-Year-Old Virgin were from letting people know they had a lot of rope and people like Craig Robinson uh, as the doorman and Leslie Mann, like they could, mm. they could really have a moment. Like, you know, we would have a great script and we could pitch them some lines. But if you just said, all right, just go at it. You know where, where you have to go. Here's A, here's B. Let's just see what happens. Someone would do something so funny that you didn't see coming that you, I was always happy that I gave them that opportunity.
0: Yeah, that's a very funny scene. So when did you start working with Leslie, your wife, in film? What was the first first film she was in with you?
1: The first movie we did together was The Cable Guy. Mm. And, you know, that was a wild movie because at the time, you know, Jim Carrey was just exploding, was the biggest comedy star in the world. He got paid a lot of money for it. There was a lot of attention on it. And Jim told everybody that he wanted to do something different. He didn't want people to think he was gonna just make super hard comedies like ace ventura every time and this was a darker satire and so when it came out we took kind of a beating even though it did pretty well financially it didn't do what they were hoping it would do Mm. but it was jim laying down the gauntlet to say to the world you're not gonna pigeonhole me and then he went on to do the truman show and eternal sunshine of the spotless mind yeah but we took a little bit a bit of a hit because people were shocked to see him go dark Right, Uh, And then now, you know, it's a few decades later, and that's one of the movies that really held up over time, because it's pretty pure to Ben and Jim's vision of what they wanted that to be. So that was the first time Leslie and I worked together. And then I don't think we worked together again till we did the 40-year-old virgin, Mm. where she played Nikki, who was like the bad date, who was
0: drinking that Steve Carell went out with yeah yeah that movie's less clear in my memory, but um knocked up and this is forty or you know I, I don't know when I last saw them, but she is so funny on camera
1: i agree and and a, and a real like co-writer of most of those ideas and and scenes. It's a real collaboration as we try to figure out those types of stories
0: yeah oh, no, that's great is that just a an unalloyed good to be working with your family. You, you, you have your daughters in some of your movies too. And, and so, I mean, you have a full, a full showbiz family now. Is that just um, a pure guilty pleasure to be able to collaborate with your family or is there um, any aspect of that which is a tightrope walk?
1: Well, in the beginning, I, I liked to work with my kids when they were very little on movies like Knocked Up because I didn't want to work with other people's kids. Mm-hmm. I just was happy to have my kids around. And then you don't have to worry about the parents of the kids. You could just have them there. So a lot of that work was just strapping them into a chair and putting bacon in front of them. And, you know, they would just relax and you'd throw them a line here and there, or they would improvise here and there. But over the course of a bunch of movies, they really learned how to act. And now they've gotten ridiculously strong mods on that show. Euphoria and Iris was just in the bubble that we did. And, and it's really fun to see them learn the craft but in a very slow way without a lot of pressure because we would just do this together every few years and i i mean i i think it's fun i like the business i like being creative so i always encouraged it sometimes i wonder you know if i encouraged dentistry would they have gone in that direction <laughs> you know did i you know steer them too much just with my pure love of
0: it I think a film where Leslie is cast as a dentist offers a lot of comic potential. Exactly, it's a fairly terrifying to picture. So I am, I my my wife and I just learned that we are probably terrible parents for having allowed our thirteen year old daughter to watch Euphoria. We haven't seen it. We don't know what horrors she's been exposed to, but all of her friends have seen it apparently, and we were just we were just browbeaten to the point of fine. You know, you can you can watch it and. um we were at a dinner party where we confessed this uh, and were greeted by looks of actual horror on the part of grown-ups who had seen euphoria I don't know <laughs> how, to see it <laughs> I don't know how guilty your daughter is for uh, producing that pornography or, or the or the most extreme scenes in there, but how much of a lapse of judgment was that to expose a thirteen year old <laughs> to uh, euphoria? Well,
1: it's funny because I've thought about this issue a lot because. When you're a parent now, you're just at war with the phone. You're at war with them being on YouTube or them exploring what's on the internet without you. And for a lot of years, when they're little, you think you can stop it. Mm. And then there's this moment, I think for most people, it happens when they start junior high yeah. and they convince you that they can handle a phone. And you want them to have a phone because you just want to know where they are. Yeah. Yeah. Like you, so, so you basically lose the battle of content of what they watch the moment you would like to control them with your GPS, or that they always can find you. And I think, what what am I fearful of them seeing on the internet? Because if I was 13, there is no scenario where I would miss anything. Mm -hmm. And I think we all fool ourselves and believe that they're not seeing the things we're afraid of them seeing, because maybe we took their phone away but every one of their friends has access to everything in the world, basically. So my philosophy has always been, I I will discourage what I don't want them to see as much as I can, but I do want the relationship where they know they can tell me what they saw and we can talk about it. If if they're ashamed or they think they're going to get in real trouble, they'll never go, what was that scene about and what are they doing and why? And I think when I look at my kids, I realize, well, that's, that's why they're hopefully uh, smart, is, is we, we had an open place where we could talk about it. Because euphoria is basically about traumatized kids, mm. a lot of them having drug problems or acting out or acting out sexually. And it's a really a beautiful story about how it affects them, affects them negatively, and the ways that they try to heal and the ways that they struggle. And I thought he did a pretty remarkable job over the two seasons of telling that story, which is very personal to the creator of it, Sam Levinson. But certainly, parents put it on and lose their minds. And like for me, I've never seen the the movie Kids or the movie Thirteen. I remember that because I'm I'm so afraid of seeing it. So I get I get it, but I think kids can process it and understand it more than parents can imagine.
0: Mm. Yeah. Well, the the lesson she seemed to be drawing from it is. Not a positive one with respect to drugs, and uh, I, she wasn't perceiving, or at least as far as I could tell, she wasn't perceiving much in there that was normative or desirable. It was just a sense of how deranged people's lives can get by picking the wrong relationships and taking the wrong substances, and so it. There was a, there was a nice kind of, <laughs> kind of conservative message being imparted, I, I think, but um, still, I have not laid eyes on it. So if You'll hear from our lawyers and and psychiatrists if (laughs) any damage was done. Well, that's what we always worry
1: about, right? Like, when our kids see something like that, such as, you know, a scene where, like, drugs create a nightmare for somebody, do they get that? Mm -hmm. Does it make them go, I don't want to do that? I was always the person that did think that. You know, my grandfather produced Janis Joplin's first album. Oh, yeah? So, at our house, they always talked about how Janis Joplin uh, was a tragic figure because she was the most talented person in the world who was addicted to drugs and she died. Hmm. And so from birth, it was like, don't do drugs or you'll wind up like Janice Joplin. That was the joke in the first episode of Freaks and Geeks when he says, You know what happened to Janice Joplin? She's dead. That was my family. <laughs> right. And you know what? It worked. Like it worked for me, but you do always wonder are my kids picking up those messages?
0: I think there's a moment in, Monterey Pop, where J- janice Joplin takes the stage, and, and if that's not the first moment where some of the people, some of the prominent people in the audience were getting exposed to her, it seemed like it. I just have this memory yeah. of I think it was like Mama Cass and yeah, Mama people. Cass
1: has that look in her eyes where she's just kind of says, "Wow, oh,
0: holy shit!" You know, yeah. I mean, <laughs> this is unbelievable. Yeah, talk about a great documentary. That's uh, and a time capsule. That's uh, just amazing to look at.
1: And there's a great Janice Joplin documentary out there. Too for mm. people who are interested in, in such things. I'm obsessed with all of those documentaries. When when someone pulls off an amazing documentary like the George Harrison documentary or the Bob Dylan documentary, I, I, I'm so
0: happy. Yeah, yeah. So, um, how are you viewing the world at this point? What are you? I, I know you're you're fairly active on Twitter. I, I get the sense that you might be left of me on on a few points. I don't know how familiar you are with my uh, various heresies, but uh, is there anything we we worry about differently, or is there any? What's the view of this moment the in view history? The Apatow
1: House. Yeah. Well, I I get worried probably most about the intersection of technology and money, and the control of what people think. Uh, that's where I get most nervous when we when we wonder about if things can get better. Mm. Is the system set up now in such a way that it's really hard to turn it back? There was an article I read, and it was about people placing ads on certain websites, conservative websites, about the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. Mm -hmm. And basically, one of the sites had spent money placing ads, which were basically links to articles about the trial because people were so interested in the trial it would it would raise the awareness for the site so it was it was worth placing ads because people were so frenzied to soak up the gossip and the pain of this trial hmm. and that's where i feel like it's very dangerous is people have found a way to make money on our worst instincts and I don't know how you set that back, this idea that people stay on the internet because they're angry. They stay on the internet because they're being fed something that works them up. And that's human nature intersecting with technology and money in a way that is pretty hard to deprogram. And I think people get angrier and angrier at their fellow man. And uh, you know the solution is to get off of it which most people have a really hard time doing, me included. And I think it changes how we look at each other. And also, I feel like if you really are looking at feeds all the time, even like the Apple News Feed, Mm. you're basically reading about every terrible thing that's happened in every country in the world. And it changes how you think we're all doing, how we're treating each other. You see the world as really scary and violent and chaotic and... I think it puts us all in a depression or it makes us all anxious or edgy or ready to fight. And when I was a kid and I would watch live at five with Jack Cafferty and Sue Simmons in New York, you know, there'd be one story about the mafia and one story mm. about like the Brooklyn district head. And then maybe there would be a news story about something that happened with the Mets and the weather. And that was kind of it. I didn't know what was going wrong in South Africa or in Ukraine. Like, I didn't know every nightmare that man commits to on someone else around the world. And I don't know what that does to people's minds to just know
0: too much. I think that last problem has been with us almost forever. I mean, just, you know, with, with billions of people on earth living their lives, there's always enough bad news to fill any news broadcast on any given day. So if, you're, if your news is going to be driven by, the logic of it—if it bleeds, it leads. You can. There's always an opportunity to just go wall to wall. Scary news, globally speaking, and or even even locally speaking. I mean, even in the local news, for as, as long as I can remember, you just you turn it on, and it's just some something horrific happening ten miles from your house that you would otherwise have no awareness of. You know, whether it's a car chase or a murder or whatever. And it's just yeah, it does. It gives you statistically a. Um, distorted picture of how likely it is for these terrible things to happen to you or to someone you love i don't know i just feel like you you have to ask yourself what's the benefit of, of having specific information you know like at what point do my girls need to know about you know exactly what the islamic state was doing to the Yazidis? Uh, you know like you know my my daughters are you know 13 and 8 you know they have not reached that point yet i, I just i don't have to have that conversation with them um, and they're not you know shamefully ignorant of reality for not having those details in their heads.
1: Well, I, I think we're all trying to figure out what is the balance between scaring our children so that they will worry about their own safety and debilitating them by making them fear too much. Yeah, uh, you know, as a parent, you're always obsessed. With, do you know to look both ways when you cross the street? yeah And that moment yeah. when you see your kid cross the street and not
0: look yeah that, like that, so that's that's where you that's where I think you can get obsessive you know you, you know to not be texting while stepping into the street, I mean that's where you make as a kind of a religious principle that that they they need full information but um oh, yeah. yeah I've
1: certainly sent you know videos of about like texting and driving
0: yeah, you yeah. Know,
1: so you know too too scare yeah. That, that seems great so to me, yeah. Th- they pay attention to that. But I wonder, what do you just, uh, uh, in a larger way, as your kids get older, and my kids are older, what is the thing you say to kids so they're just generally feeling happy or at peace and not living in a constant state of fear or that something bad is going to happen? What do you uh, fill them with? Like, my parents weren't religious. The only thing they ever said was, nobody said life was fair. And mm-hmm. sometimes they would say, maybe next year will be our year. You know, uh-huh. There was a lot of that kind of uh-huh. talk. And so there was no religion, and slowly, a lot through Gary Shandling, I learned about Buddhism, and I, I don't know if I would say I was Buddhist, but I'm attracted to that, that school of thought. It doesn't always get me all the way there to mm-hmm. like a place where I feel any kind of mental security, but I, 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 I do appreciate the idea of non-attachment and letting go. And also that if I'm completely quiet and I drop everything, that my center is kind of leaning happy. Mm-hmm. If I could not think about anything, I'm in a decent place. But wh- what do you do or what do you think is the, the thing you can fill a kid with to not be empty or not be terrified by the world?
0: Well, I think there are two levels to it. I mean, whether you're a kid or a, an adult, I think it, the answer is probably the same. and you know that at one level, one's beliefs and one's knowledge, you know, and, and the concepts that mediate that, really does a lot of heavy lifting. So if I mean, if you believe that you know certain bad things are incredibly likely to happen, and they're in fact not at all likely to happen, well then that irrational belief can really cast a terrible shadow over over your life, and you know you can be phobic of things that really pose no danger to you, etc. And so changing the you know, the story you tell yourself at the level of your thoughts can really fundamentally change your experience of the world. But beneath all of that, there's more non-conceptual ways of just shifting your experience. And you know, for me, mindfulness, you know, it goes by other names, but just a naked awareness of your experience and the mechanics of your own suffering. I mean, just the 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 way in which entanglement with thought seems to define your mind in each moment, and when you can break that spell, you can recognize that there's much more space in there, that awareness is just this condition in which everything, positive and negative, is arising all by itself, and it doesn't actually get fully confined by either positive or negative experience, and it certainly doesn't get confined by thoughts once, once you notice thoughts as just appearances in consciousness. Um so kind of breaking one's identification with thought of any kind is somewhat analogous to waking up from a dream you know you're just you're you're having a dream and you know whether it's good or bad you're completely confused about your actual circumstance your actual circumstance is you're sleeping in bed and you you're just unaware of that and when you wake up there's this you, you know whatever was going on there's this fundamental relief because that thing the, the status of that previous moment's experience has completely changed. It's just now it's a figment of, of your imagination, disappearing into who knows where a moment later, and every thought is like that. You know, it, and no matter how dire it, it is or seems to be, you know the thought by which you're comparing yourself to somebody and 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 hating yourself and diminishing yourself by comparison, you know that's just a bit of language in your mind which you can recognize and no longer feel implicated in. So any advice I would give to my daughters or anyone else really exists at those two levels, where you you want your beliefs about the world to be in some kind of register with the world. So you know, if, if things are really dangerous and really recurring a lot, and it makes sense to keep them in view because you know, you're, you're going to fundamentally change the probability that you're going to, that bad things will happen if you, if you pay attention to those things. Um, well, then, by all means, have those things in view. But for 99% of the things that people can find themselves worrying about, that's really not the case. And we just get this amplified fear response to hypotheticals that, you know, not only are they not going to happen to you, they're not going to happen to anyone you've ever met. And yet, you know, many people can still be led to to worry about them.
1: I mean, the hard part about that, there's a couple of hard things about mm. executing that. One is, you know, when your kids are just emotional, as, uh, as, uh, as you will see, as they hit the teen years, yep. the, the last thing they want is this talk, right? Like, like, it's really hard talk to go, well, the chances of something happening are so small, mm. you know, because it's, you're, it's just pure emotion. You're running on hormones and, and all that. So, Like the world of uh, being centered and quiet and calm is so hard just because there's other people around who are all flipping out. And so staying in that space around that is hard. And for me, I find it hard because so much of what is neurotic or damaged about me is the thing I tap into to be creative or to write or to create comedy, it's all from the wound mm. in some way. It's all from the bad instincts, or noticing the bad instincts in other people, in all, all the ways that we're all damaged and how we act out against each other. So I find myself swimming in it creatively and in my imagination to create stories. And then the business itself is so competitive and everyone in it is somewhat ego-driven that everything about trying to succeed Forces you to tap into parts of yourself which are competitive or trying to win win, or trying to anticipate what might happen so you can fix it before it crashes. So, if I want to be centered and in the moment, everything about my job is about trying to figure out what could go wrong, Mm. whether it's a script or a marketing thing. And so, to to live in that Buddha dream you want to get to, there's so few times in the day where you really can just clear it all and try to be there. Except when I'm listening to your app, Mm
0: -hmm. then it happens. (laughs) Success is an interesting thing to contemplate because it's fascinating how we move the goalposts or they get moved for us somehow by an invisible hand. How much have you been able to actually enjoy reaching something like cruising altitude in your career and in your life, I mean, I, you know viewed from the outside, you have absolutely made it in every way one would imagine you've been attempting to make it. And so they' they're really like, like if you can't enjoy it now, you know, when when might you enjoy it? This is certainly a relevant question to ask. But yet you're always, in some sense, Exposed to this this perverse logic, where you know, like, basically, the moment you you accomplish something, the attainment of that goal reveals itself to be a kind of mirage, and you're—I mean, you can you can be satisfied for some brief period, but then there's always the the imperative of figuring out what you're going to do next, and you know, if to avoid boredom, uh, you know, if nothing else, uh, and people will. will turn and ask you what are you going to do next and in some sense if you, if you're especially bad at extracting the satisfaction that should be available to you at this point in your career I guess you could feel that you're really only as good as the very last thing you did and you're you' you know it's all of your your previous success offers no actual refuge so there's a, a long way of asking just how how do you feel about your career at this point, and, and how has it, how has success affected you psychologically? I mean, have you have you have you gotten to a point where many of the things you really were hoping to achieve and were kind of anguished by not having achieved them at an earlier point in your career? Has the achievement of those things scratched any of those itches in a in a durable way, or are you? I mean, like how much happier are you for having succeeded at this point?
1: Well, my, my bar for success, for feeling like a success, was always very low. Mm. I just wanted Bud Friedman at the improv to think I was funny. <laughs> I mean, I, I really mm. didn't think that much beyond that. If I was considered a comedian that other comedians thought was pretty good, that was the main bar for me, just to be a comedian and to be legitimate. So I, in all honesty, of my satisfaction is just from that. Like I'm Mm -hmm. in the business, I'm allowed to work. People think I'm good enough to continue to work. And a lot of what I like about it is the camaraderie with other funny people. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be funny enough so that other funny people would want to collaborate with me or hang out with me. I just like that community. I, I watched Saturday Night Live or Monty Python and thought I'd love to hang out with a group like that. Like, I want to find my my people. And then when I had a lot of shows canceled and things happened that felt rough, Freaks and Geeks getting canceled or right. stiller or undeclared, I, mean, I had a lot of things get canceled, movies not making money for a long time. I mean, it took a really long time to get a hit. I always thought, well, at least I'm working and I can't believe I get to do this at all. I've already accomplished the main goal. It would be nice if it was more successful. But I remember when we did Freaks and Geeks, when it ended and it was suddenly canceled, I thought, I think this show is great. And what Paul Feig and I and Jake Hazen and the cast and the crew did, I think this might be as good as I'll ever do. Mm. I don't know if I'll ever make anything better than this or be a part of a collaboration that makes something like this. So I, I made this conscious decision in that moment to look at it as if I had completed you know my goal mm-hmm. and everything after freaks and geeks in the year 2000 was a bonus and i could experiment i could take risks because i had i had done it well once and that was enough that i did something that was spe- i mean for me was really special and it all worked and that helped me a lot because it is a game you play in your head to not always want more yeah and i think yeah. as we see a lot of people having hard times with their success. On television, a lot of big stars who seem to be melting down, you can feel that that's what they're struggling with, that they thought the success would somehow solve their problems. But really all success does is reveal your problems because you get successful and you instantly notice I didn't get happier. It didn't work. I have all the same problems and now I actually have to either deal with them or numb them out and avoid them, or melt down, because they're the same ones. And I think that's why a lot of people have a really hard time, because there's no escape. It's fun to try to climb the ladder when your goal is, I'm going to get successful, and then I'm going to feel good. Mm-hmm. And when you get there and you don't feel good, you know that's when you have to really look inside and go to the therapist or do your meditating, because I think that's a brutal moment on people. And a, and a moment that most people don't have any compassion for because it's hard, you know, most people don't get to that level of success and they don't care about your problems. So you also feel alone in your pain. Yeah. Uh, because no one no one has any compassion for the fact that you're suffering because, you know, you're successful in your field. So for me, I I think I'm probably as happy as as a normal neurotic person with their own problems can be with how work has gone because what I'm trying to get to is like a moment of creation. Like the best part of what I do is just the moment we think of a joke. So I love reading all those books about flow states. Mm. And they're usually about like people doing X games type activities. But for me, it's about sitting in a room with a few funny people and someone just thinks of something and we just start laughing. And that space that's kind of as close as I get to real spirituality Mm. is that that connection with the other people and being completely myself and thinking of something creative that at least in that moment feels like it works you know that's what I'm trying to get to the other stuff like a movie bombing or a movie doing well that's all stress and terror and Mm. but the best moment is just like oh my god I just thought of the dumbest joke and that's where like pure joy Mm. can come from
0: So, what was the, the, was it the 40 year old version that was the, the actual kind of sea change in your career? Is that, was that the moment where suddenly you could just get things made where you, whereas before that you couldn't?
1: Well, I was uh, the producer of Anchorman. And Anchorman was the first thing I did that was a, like, an actual hit. Mm -hmm. It wasn't enormous, but it was a solid hit. And when that was over, it was successful enough that when I said, that I wanted to make a movie with Steve Carell, The 40-Year-Old Virgin, the, the studio, Universal Studios, they kind of got what I was going for. And I, I think the, the hard part in show business sometimes is until you have a hit, you have no credibility. Yeah. So if you say to someone, I think this is going to be a hit, they just look at you and think, well, it's, you've never been right before, mm-hmm. so why would we do that? And, and as soon as you have a couple of hits, they go, well, I guess... We should give him a shot because he's succeeded once or twice or or more. So it gave me enough credibility to try that. And then when that worked, I had enough of a foundation to begin to work on some other things. And then it's just all your ratio of success. No one succeeds all the time. Mm -hmm. But if you have a decent ratio of success, people think, well, it's not insane to let him make something.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So um, what has the other variables here that come with success? Done to you, and, and 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 what seems like an optimal place to be with respect to I'm, I'm thinking in particular fame and and wealth. There's, I guess wealth is more of an intrinsic good than fame. Fame definitely is is a two edged sword. I mean, you must. Uh, I would imagine you and I agree that we've been around people who are obviously too famous, where the like the downside of fame is has suddenly become very salient and, and you would any part of you that might want to be more famous can look over at that person and say, Yeah, but not that famous.
1: Yes, because you just you lose so much. You know, when you're so famous that you think, I would go there, but it's gonna be hard. Yeah. You've lost so much yeah. in your life. And maybe you've gained enough that you're you're okay with that trade. But I think after a while you don't really know how much you've lost that you can't move through the world and just be anybody, that people aren't looking at you. That people, I mean, I think it's weird just to walk in rooms and everyone's excited to see you. Yeah, I think that that distorts your sense of reality, and I think that when it goes away, it's, it must be a very painful thing. I mean, I think that uh, I've been very lucky that people are not really that interested in me. My lack of charisma and star power <laughs> has really saved <laughs> my life. Because, yeah. you know, I, I feel like sometimes people recognize me and they don't even say they do because they just don't care right. at all. And so they won't even say hello. And, mm. you know, I, I don't have the, the sense of like doors opening for me. And that's been great. Like for the most part, I, I don't have to think about it almost at all. And that, that's been a, a positive. And I have friends that handle it very gracefully. And they're fine with it. And then I have other friends who, they're uncomfortable. And it's an intrusion into their everyday life. They have to deal with it in every single space they enter. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's not even so much if, if it's right or wrong to be irritated by it. But it just changes, it changes the rest of your life. Mm. You're, you're not having the same uh, experience. I mean, for me, if one out of 30 times at a restaurant they give me an extra dessert, because they liked one of my mm-hmm. movies, that's the best ratio. Yeah. One out of 30, extra piece of cake.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, I'm definitely in this uncanny valley where it would be totally irrational for me to expect to be recognized just the next place I go, right? Like I, you know, if I walk into a restaurant or I walk into a supermarket, I'm not actually a famous person. So it would be crazy for me to, to expect the next person i'm going to deal with to recognize me and yet it happens frequently enough that i'm continually ambushed by it so you know whereas <laughs> whereas a real celebrity walks in and they know everyone recognizes them so they've priced that in to every encounter yet i'm you know i'm often in the weird circumstance of you know i'm i'm at a restaurant and and i've been dealing with a, a waiter or a waitress for a half hour and only then do they say, oh, by the way, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the podcast. Or, and and then, I'm, then I'm left with this sort of mismatch between who I thought I was, anonymous person, for the last half hour and who, in fact, and, and the situation, in, in fact, I was in. Whereas a real celebrity never has that. They just know that, you know, if you're Tom Cruise, you know, literally everyone who lays eyes on you knows exactly who you are. And then you've, you've, you've just built your life, you know, in conformity with that. Are you in my uncanny valley or, are you, or are you just, uh, is it rational for you to assume everyone knows who you are?
1: No, I, I always assume no one does. And I don't even think about it. Like It never, it never occurs to me that anybody would know who I was uh, in, in, a, in a great way that mm. maybe is inaccurate, but I, I never think it. And it is funny because you could be somewhere and you're not allowed to be like ornery. So if you're in a restaurant <laughs> and you're in a terrible mood because something real happened in your life and 30 minutes into, into lunch. Uh, the waiter's like, uh, all right, Sam. And you're like, oh, God, I've just been you know, staring yeah. at my soup the whole time. And I, I haven't been that warm to anybody because I'm just sitting here suffering. That's why people like Tom Cruise, he, he's got that face all day long, right? He's got that mm-hmm. happy face like, hey, how you doing? Hey, because he knows that that interaction with him is the best moment of everybody's mm-hmm. life who meets him. And so he never could be in a bad mood.
0: That could also be Scientology face. I, I don't know in this case.
1: That's Scientology working right there. Yeah,
0: <laughs> but the, yeah, but that mismatch between who you would want to be when you know your public persona is exposed, and who you are content to be when you think you're anonymous, noticing any kind of distance between those two senses of of ethics or just uh, self presentation. I mean, that that's odd to discover in yourself. I, I actually feel like the the famous mode is in some way healthier like you actually you want to be the person who you wish you would be when you yeah. knew your public reputation was on the line
1: you want to be the polite yeah the polite happy patient centered person yeah. uh, yes Generous, I, mean, I guess that yeah. would be the good part of it that's why when celebrities have any kind of public meltdown people are just so shocked yeah. because it's the crack of the persona they've tried to to present but also all of that stuff has nothing to do with why any creative person does what they do. Right. It is this weird side thing that you, you have to be able to go on a talk show. You have to be able to talk in an interview. You have to you know, go and uh, go to an event and be a nice person. And most people who go into creativity, they go into it because they don't feel great and they have something to say and they're hurt and they're damaged. So it's actually a group of people that it's probably harder for them to create that facade sometimes.
0: Yeah. I mean, comedy is its own thing. I mean, I don't know if you can generalize about comics versus actors versus other creative people you deal with. I mean, I think, you know, it's very, these are very different gigs, especially, you know, writers versus performers. I mean, it's just, it's incredibly different. Obviously, there are people who do all three of those things, but I got to think it's different. I mean, the, the the difference between being a writer and being any of those other things one one thing that's huge it's at least or it's always seemed huge to me is that you can work prior to anyone hiring you right if you're an actor you're just you you really can't you're waiting around to be hired and you're being rejected uh, very often for these superficial things whereas at least if you're a writer you can keep plowing away and getting better at your craft and storing up work which somebody you know you know in success may want to go. Use all, your whole catalog. I got to think it's prior to real success. It's less frustrating.
1: Well, I always say to everyone I work with: learn how to write. You know, for actors, for comedians, you don't want to sit around waiting for someone to give you a job. Yeah, that's part of it. Is you hope someone recognizes your talent, but always assume that they won't, and try to create the project, the script, mm-hmm. the internet video, whatever you do yourself, the the album. Because if you're just hoping someone sees it in you, that is a one in a million that that moment happens. But if you make a five-minute movie or a, you know, Lena Dunham, she made a feature film for $50,000. And that's how her career took off. She took the initiative. She didn't wait for everyone to recognize her. And it is so inexpensive to make things now. Our phone, people are making movies on phones. So if you're a creative person, you have the ability to do work that's you know way better than when I went to film school and we were shooting on super 8 mm-hmm. film anything on an iphone's better than that
0: yeah and yeah.
1: so i always tell people just make stuff uh, and and don't wait around but comedy's hard because when you do stand up you're bad while you're learning how to do it so you have to go in front of people and be bad mm-hmm. to get good so just by starting it i think like it's healthy for your ego because you're basically making a deal to suffer. I'm going to take a year or two and get humiliated most nights in order to understand the code of how to be a comedian. And then at some point it will just turn if I have talent.
0: Yeah, comedy is is unlike anything else because, you know, especially and st- I guess stand up is the the most extreme case of this because it, the, the, what you're attempting to do is Fully transparent, you're attempting to get laughs, and the place at which you're attempting to get the laugh is telegraphed, so the success or failure of it is salient to everyone, right? Like like I mean it's it's very different if you're giving a lecture and then you, know, you do, and you're just your main purpose is to convey information, and then you just happen to make it funny in places. Well that's a bonus and that's that's you know every great lecture has some of that but you're not being judged by this the same logic of a high wire act where you know you're trying to get a laugh and you fail and you try to get a laugh and you fail you do that a few times as a comic and you know it's it's a disaster but in success it's it is a really unique experience where I mean you know laughter is this response that you know is not voluntary. I mean, I guess people can fake it. If it's, you know, most people find that pretty hard. But you know, honest laughter is just this amazing piece of feedback that you're getting socially. That there really is no. I mean, I don't. I don't know what it, what is analogous to it. But it's to have a you know a room filled with a thousand people suddenly erupt in, in an involuntary show of joy and. Appreciation. I mean, it's a you know, it's a, it's a totally addictive thing. One one imagines, but it's you know, the the, the the success failure mode for it is binary in a way that it really isn't for so many other things that people can succeed at.
1: It's one of the only meritocracies. It really, mm-hmm. really is. I mean, Jerry Seinfeld always talks about this. You know, if you're great, they're laughing. You know, yeah, it, it's just obvious.
0: Even people who don't want to laugh and even people who would otherwise be disposed to hate you, if you are funny enough and your jokes are landing with them, you're, you're, that's why we talk about, you know, killing an audience or murdering an audience. I mean, you're doing something to them that they can't prevent.
1: Yeah, there's a moment in the, in the documentary about George Carlin where George Carlin is talking about laughter. And our editor, Joe Beschenkovsky, created this amazing scene where we cut to close-ups of people. In the audience at Carnegie Hall, laughing Mm -hmm. at him, and he—it's from an interview where he's saying, "When you laugh, it's one of the only times when you're purely yourself, Mm -hmm. where you're completely not self-conscious." And this idea of making people laugh and in a big room and having all these people in that mode together, connecting—just the 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 power of that—and you know, it's pretty—it's you know, it's pretty rare that. Anyone can do it. And the people who are the best at it, it's pretty remarkable. And we have so many great comedians right now and people are doing really, really well and they dig deep and comedy is very personal these days. It's very different when I first started. You know, now comedians, they all, you know, they have podcasts and they're really out there and the audience has this deep relationship with comedians. They're not just someone they would see do five minutes on the Merva Griffin show. They've listened to them for maybe hundreds of hours talking. Yeah. And then they go see them on the road. And I think it's a really cool thing what it's evolved into.
0: Are you doing any stand up these days?
1: I, I am. I'm, uh, you know, doing shows at the Comedy Cellar and at Largo and, oh, in cool. LA. Not a ton, but I was just in New York and did a week at the Comedy Cellar. And I wasn't really feeling myself. I was feeling a little depressed. I was a little lost comedically. And I said, I'm just going to go to the Comedy Cellar and go on like three times a night for a week and see if I can get my train back on the tracks. And it did exactly that. Mm. It Just having that relationship with the audience and having them tell me what's funny and even what they think of me and to force myself to suffer through that and locate myself again and where my, my comedy comes from was great. And I, I've actually felt a lot better since then.
0: Is that Noam Dorman's place, the comedy yeah. center? Yeah, yeah. He's, I've never met him, but it, we have an email relationship. He's a, he's a very smart guy. Yes. Yeah. No. He's great. Yeah. Well, Judd, it's great to connect. Is there anything we, we haven't hit that you, you want to talk about?
1: Things uh, to hit. Um, well, that, well, I guess my main question would be: in this moment, in America, where where do you see hope, or where do you find your optimism, and how how are you feeling with how things seem to be to be going? It's so easy mm. to feel a sense of of dread and that's a, a lot of what george carlin was talking about that he, i mean he he had a very conspiratorial philosophy at times where he said you know the rich people want us fighting so they can steal the money and no one pays attention and they want us uneducated and they want us numb and he said we have sold our souls we have sold out for gizmos we've sold out for phones which make us pancakes and rub our balls. And he had a big, uh, you know, he had big routines. That's why why the documentary is called The American Dream, because he really felt like there was a a major betrayal. And he said, America is about being seduced and then betrayed. But I wonder what your sense, as you think about the next five to 10 years, what you think. Because I always worry that America is like the cupcake test, you know, you always hear about the cupcake test. Like, if you put a kid in a room and you say, if you don't eat the cupcake, the marshmallow cupcake, test, yeah. Oh, the marshmallow. Uh, yeah. if, if, if you sit here and you don't eat the marshmallow, this one's stale. I'll give you two if you could wait like a half an hour. You know, can the kid not eat the marshmallow? And I feel like the yeah. whole country is eating the marshmallow all the time right. and yeah. every issue.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have never been accused of being an optimist. I'm not a pessimist either. I mean, it's, like, it's almost like that circuit has uh, blown a fuse for me, you know, and I, I don't really fluctuate between the two. I mean, I, I tend to notice what's wrong more than what's right. And so I, I guess I'm biased toward the negative in, in that regard. And I think I, I spend, a, I, I effortlessly focus on the consequences of bad ideas. You know, that's where uh, kind of the center of my, of gravity is for me. You know, ethically and and intellectually, m- much of the time, but I I'm also aware that the negativity gets magnified, and that it's there there are illusions that get built up around just having as you know we said earlier access to all the world's bad news, and I consciously correct for that. You know, I, I've I've definitely unplugged from Twitter to a significant degree. I, I spend much less time on it, and. And I take it less seriously when I when I do spend time on it. I mean, I just I, I've uh, kind of recalibrated it as a source of information, you know, all the while knowing that you know the phrase "Twitter isn't real life" is fairly vacuous when you do have you know major political events and journalistic news cycles that are in large part driven by things that happen you know, on Twitter. So I don't know. I, I just feel like there's. Um, it's very easy to underestimate how resilient we are, how technological change is, is very often causing problems that seem intractable to evaporate, and, and you haven't really priced that in. It takes something like climate change, you know, about which I think it is certainly rational to worry, but it's easy to not anticipate the way in which technology may Yet come to the rescue in ways that are that are hard I mean that somebody can foresee, but if that's really not in your wheelhouse, you know you're not thinking about that at all. You're thinking about the current shape of the problem, you know and taking its temperature right now and then extrapolating into the future how unworkable things will be. So I'm pretty bullish on us as a species if we can if we can manage not to ruin our capacity for conversation. And, and persuasion politically. And I, you know, I do, I do worry that we are well on our way to doing that in the United States in particular. I and mean, I just think what what, it, what happened with Trump did seem like a, a five alarm fire to me, you know, politically and, and informationally. And so I, I, I get the sense that many people are aware of that problem and are course correcting and that, you know, the world's technologists are also aware of it, you know, more and more. But it does come back to to incentives in the end. I mean, just like our best intentions will be totally feckless if not aligned with our actual incentives. And that, so that, you know, the business model of of the internet is is still worries me. And um, yeah, I mean, I just, it's, uh, I'm I'm not an optimist, but I I have, you know, I love life and I love the world. And it's, you you know, kind of, Curiosity and love are most of what animates me, you know, most of the time. And, um, yeah, I mean, we just, we, we, <laughs> we need to, uh, not screw things up. And that's, um, th- that should be easy uh, given all of the opportunities in front of us and given how far we've come. But it's, um, uh, I would agree that recent years have, uh, and especially our response to COVID and how impossible it became to, form any kind of consensus around fairly basic facts, that was pretty alarming. I mean, that, that was a dress rehearsal for something far worse that I, I think we objectively failed. Uh, and so that, that's interesting to figure out how we, we sift through the rubble of that and do better next time.
1: Well, yeah, when the president says, oh, yeah, there's, there's seven cases and they'll all be gone in like two weeks. <laughs> it's funny that like our country doesn't collectively go, yeah, that doesn't sound right." Yeah. That doesn't sound right. Like, there's something strange there. My biggest concern is just there doesn't seem to be an incentive to allowing the other party to have anything that can be perceived as a win. And mm-hmm. so it's it's all about a complete shutdown of cooperation that the opposing party wants you to accomplish nothing. And I don't remember it being like that before the last... 10 or 15 years. And that's what really scares me when there's clearly simple solutions to things, but it's all about this game. But more importantly, I wanted to ask you, do I have free will?
0: Yes. You alone, you okay. alone have it. I just yeah. need it for
1: myself. I don't yeah. even need it for anyone else around yeah. me. Just as long as I feel like I'm in control of Judd, then I'm okay. Yeah. Should I spend more time? Cause I listened to the, the, the podcast you did about this and, uh, it doesn't motivate me to really do anything, but I can, I can uh, collapse into like a discussion like that, and it doesn't make me feel uh, happy when I mm-hmm. think about that. And the only way out of it is for me to just go, well, I disagree with, with all of that. Mm-hmm. I can't allow myself to agree with it, but that I am a biochemical puppet. But do you think if I thought that, I would be happy?
0: Yeah, well, I think the um, punchline ethically and psychologically for me is almost entirely positive, uh, you know, fully absorbing the illusoriness of free will. I mean, what, one of the implications is you realize that you're permeable to an uncountable number of influences, right? And you really don't know how different you could be tomorrow, right? I mean, just, it's just better ideas, better conversations. Better books. You're not condemned to be who you were yesterday, and uh, you're only by tendency doing a very faithful impersonation of who you were yesterday. And you can break that spell. So there's a kind of freedom that creeps in, even though there's no rational account of you being outside the causal network. I mean, the, the, the default position of that most people seem to inhabit or pretend to inhabit is they imagine that there's this set of all things that happen. In the universe. And then there's the set of things that they do of their own free will. And that those sets, maybe they overlap a little bit, but they don't overlap entirely. Whereas the the actual Venn diagram is all the stuff you do is 100% within this larger set of things that just happen. And you really can't do other than what happens. But what happens in your case is really a a very complicated stream of influences. And there's just no telling how different things can become. And there's also the fact that recognizing this, you know, the kind of the the causal picture here gives you a very clear basis for forgiveness, both of yourself and of others, right? So if you do something that, you know, if you fail in some way that could cause a lot of regret, you really don't have to spend a lot of time regretting that because it really on some level couldn't have been otherwise i mean you just have to learn the the feeling that it should have been otherwise is a a signal that you really want to do better next time right i mean like you don't want you don't want to repeat that failure so now you're good rather than just stew in this mood of regret beating yourself up for not doing the thing you should have done you just need to to learn you take it as a training signal for the next time but it's like like how much time should you spend hating yourself for the last thing you failed to do well the answer is no time at all i mean it's like it, i mean you should just extract the lesson from it and then realize that there's a way to do it differently in the future and so it, for me it, it creates a space of psychological freedom paradoxically that you know people don't necessarily would expect but it's um for me, there's no, there's no downside. I mean, it, it doesn't lead to apathy in any way, because there's still all the things you want. There's still the difference between happiness and suffering in each moment, and you care about that difference, right? I mean, you want to feel good rather than bad, and being on the right side of that is always a matter of doing something next, you know, with your attention, you know, if not in actual outward behavior. And that is, again, that's still part of this causal nexus but it's um in each moment you 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 don't know what this next moment's going to be and it's so there's a a freedom in that even if it's determined in some way that you you can't quantify
1: well but you also can train yourself consciously to maybe make better decisions i remember harold ramus you know who was a existentialist i guess and he he always said you know i don't believe in god so whether or not I'm a good person or a bad person is completely up to me. I'm not doing it mm-hmm. because I'm worried about getting in trouble. I, I just decide if I just want to be a good person or a bad person, and I've decided I just want to be a good person. And that's all there is to it, which to me always feels like the only idea that helps me, which is when the Dalai Lama says, my religion is kindness. Mm-hmm. If I only think about that, that's the only thing I'm trying to grill into my mind, serves me in almost every yeah. single situation
0: yeah yeah and um yeah recognizing that no one is deeply responsible for themselves i mean no one no one created themselves gives you the the chance to extend the kindness even into those situations where you normally it it would seem impossible right? i mean you can have compassion for people you you know you can't stand on some level and come away from situations just more or less with an attitude of kindness even if you're extricating yourself from the situation just realizing that on some level it's all you're you're, you're surrounded by you know wild animals that can't be any way other than they are you know if you you don't feel you don't, you don't hate you know bears and and birds and you know other misbehaving things out there in nature because you're not, on some level, they they can't be other than bears and birds, you know, and if they're dangerous, well, then you realize, okay, I'm going to avoid the bear, but you don't hate it, and you don't think it should be behaving other other than it is, and and on some level, you can extend that spirit of kind of patience and compassion even to bad people, and it does, it's not to say you don't want to contain the damage they do, but it's, it, it feels different. It's like, it's a point that Many people made. I remember Bill Maher making it. I think at one point, where you you look at you look at an event like nine eleven, and you compare that to an event like Hurricane Katrina, and there's sort of analogous levels of destruction. I mean, I think in one case, uh, I think with Hurricane Katrina, it was like a thousand people died, and nine eleven, three thousand people died. But you know, one one of them de- completely deranges human history for you know more than a decade, and one we just sort of move in there and clean up the mess and rebuild and there's nothing more to think about it's not a perfect analogy because a hurricane is not you know a global ideology that is, is spreading that we still have to can, you know, have to respond to but there is just a feeling like we're dealing with people who have free will and who could and should do otherwise goads us into responding emotionally in a way that we would never respond to a force of nature and on some level, it's really all of our problem, it's all a force of nature. And we could have that more equanimous, pragmatic response, even where a response is necessary in some sustained way, we could relax a little bit more than, than we do. And, and this, this argument about the illusoriness of free will points in that direction for me.
1: I actually understood that. <laughs> that worked. That's I the really highest praise. <laughs> we need to end this conversation because I got it. And if we talk cool. more, I'll start understanding nice. it less. But I like <laughs> that. I'm gonna use it on several relatives I have issues cool. with. Like that's actually gonna be helpful. And awesome. now I'm gonna go listen to the old podcasts where you talk about it. And now that I understand this part, I think I'll understand the old podcast cool. cool better. But you know my philosophy, and it's much simpler than that, and it's funny because I'm in comedy, but I had this notion recently where I just thought, my issue is, I'm in comedy, but I need to lighten up. Mm. I just need to lighten up. Like Buddhism, like beginner's mind, Yeah, I just need to not take everything so seriously. So, use your philosophy to get
0: there. Nice, nice. Well, great to connect, Judd. Reminding people that uh, they should watch your um, George Carlin doc on HBO, and also... Your book, which we've neglected because I haven't read it, but re- remind people what, what's, your, what's your new book?
1: It's called Sicker in the Head. And it is uh, interviews with people like Sasha Baron Cohen and Will Ferrell. Gail King is in there, Lynn Manuel mm-hmm. Miranda. And it's a lot of discussions about life and comedy. And they were all done during the pandemic. So they're very emotional, personal interviews. Nice. And all the money goes to charity, it goes to 826. 826- a charity which raises money for uh, literacy and tutoring programs around the country.
0: Awesome. That's great. Thanks again, Joe Great to connect.
1: Great. Thanks, Sam.